Well, the, the Bible teaches that the believer has at least two different nationalities. One, by virtue of birth, one earthly, and the other one, by virtue of the new birth, of the spirit, heavenly. All of us here, we are at least citizens of a, one country. There are people who have two, dual nationality, but at least of one country where we were born. And we, are, we inherit that citizenship, whether because we were born physically in that country or because our parents were born, uh, were from that nationality. For instance, in the UK, you, you become a citizen by inheritance or of your parents. Although, for instance, Martin was born in, a, in, my son youngest was born in this land, his nationality is Portuguese. But the believer not only has the earthly passport, we have the heavenly passport. Those that have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the, into the kingdom of his wondrous light. Paul calls them citizens of heaven. In Philippians 3.20, that very famous verse, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from where we await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say this is that in our text today, in Acts 13, uh, 23, verse 1, the Apostle Paul uses a very similar word for the word citizenship in Philippians 3. The word citizenship there could be translated as homeland or as nationality. And in our text today, when Paul says, for I, you know the, the way that I have lived, or my conscience is clear in the way that I have lived, uh, he uses the same word. He uses that same word, or the, the same connotation is, is their presence. Uh, it's, like, it's like the Apostle Paul is saying, you know that I have behaved in your presence as a citizen. I have been like a citizen. I have lived in all good conscience. I behaved like a citizen before God until this day. This passage will helps us to understand this condition of being dual citizens, of having uh, two addresses, one physical, one spiritual. Because there are not only privileges and responsibilities that come with uh, our citizenship, but there are also inherently uh, uh, present conflicts that arise from this dual citizenship. And that's what, what I think this passage serves to encourage us this morning. The title is Be of Good Cheer, using the words of our Lord Jesus in verse 11. We will consider, first of all, the indignation of the apostle at the attitude of the high priest who violently interrupted his speech. We will see Paul's testimony before the Sinedrum, and we'll see his deliverance and the encouragement is deliverance by the commander and the encouragement by the Lord Jesus. So the la last week we, we, we saw them, we, 
the Apostle Paul was brought into the fortress Antonia. The, uh, the commander wanted to interrogate him uh, forcefully, uh, but he, he graciously uh, uh, made them know that he was a Roman. So they were very afraid. How do we handle this? Uh, how do we find out the truth? Claudius Lysias, the commander, he still wants to know what is going on with this man, what is happening here. He still wants to know what, what, what is it that concerns this man, the Apostle Paul, that is causing all of this rioting around Jerusalem. So in accordance, he does the next best thing. He calls the, 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 the Sanhedrin, I believe from verse 23, we, we can imp- uh, from chapter 23, verse 30, we can imply that he calls the Sanhedrin to come to, to the fortress rather than, than take Paul to the, to the usual meeting place of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be about 70 uh, uh, elders of Israel, 70 people of standing within the, 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 the nation of Israel. Uh, they would be composed of the, the two parties, the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But, and they would gather, they would convene in a venue where the high priest would preside over and judge the apostle or judge matters pertaining to the Jewish law. And I think that is what, what happens here having ruled out torture as a means of interrogation because Paul is a Roman citizen, but still not understanding exactly what's happening, the commander calls for the Sanhedrin to meet, to hear the apostle, to clarify accusations against him, and to try and clear out all this confusion that is going on in the city. So the Apostle Paul appears before the, the Sanhedrin, or I, th- I think rather the, the Sanhedrin is brought to the Apostle Paul in the fortress, and, and he begins speaking. He looks them dead straight in the eyes, man of courage that the Apostle Paul is, and he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Basically he is saying, and th- I think that's the reason why the, the, the high priest gets so upset with him, he's basically saying, I am clear of any guilt. I have a clear conscience. I am innocent. I have not broken anything. I have not uh, defamed, profaned, or blasphemed against Judaism. I, have, I am in good conscience before God. And it's not to be inferred that by Paul saying this, that he meant that he was a spiritual perf- perfectionist. Paul is not saying, oh look, I have no sin. I, I am perfect. Because Paul himself, he says, doesn't he? He is the chief of sinners. He, he, he recognizes in other places that he, is, uh, he had a righteousness not of his own according to the law, but one that is of Christ. He knows this. Paul is saying that he is in clear conscience, that he has acted in accordance with the will of God, and that he has repented of sins that he has committed, that his conscience is clear, that he has absolutely nothing to do with this accusation. It might be that he refers to all his behavior, 
you can ask, well, is his clear conscience uh, to do with the accusation? Is his clear conscience to do with all his behavior in, in, uh, at this time? Is his clear conscience to do with his behavior throughout his life? Throughout his, throughout his, his, uh, his whole uh, life, even prior to his conversion. It might be that it has to do with all his life. And he's saying, my, my conscience is clear. Even before I became a Christian, I've always acted uh, in accordance with the, with, with the law. Matthew Henry says this, and I think uh, he, he's quite pre- uh, perceptive. He says, Paul was always a man inclined to religion. He was never one who lived unruly, but always made an, in, a difference between moral evil and good or moral good and evil, even in his unregenerate state. As to the righteousness that is in the law, he was blameless. Even when he persecuted the church of God, he thought he was, uh, it was his duty to do so, and that by doing so, he was serving God. So it might be that Paul is saying, my conscience is clear. Before conversion and after conversion, I've always sought to be a Pharisee and blameless. Uh, before and now I know... That, that righteousness that is not of myself but is of Christ. But uh, it might be that he's, he's saying, my conscience is clear in all the ways that I've acted after my conversion, having been enlightened by the Spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 12. He says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in this world in the world, in simplicity, godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly towards you. He's saying, my, our boasting is this, and our, the testimony of our conscience is this, that we conducted ourselves in the, in the world simply with sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but in God's grace. In any case, Paul is not saying my, God, my good conscience is the judge of this matter. Some people, we, we sometimes use this and we sometimes fail at this. We, we get some, uh, some, some disagreement and, and, and we cannot agree on something and someone will, will immediately come in and say, oh, well, my conscience is clear. Well, good for you. Your conscience is clear. That doesn't mean that you're right. That, you, that doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. In any case, uh, Paul, for instance, he says, he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 4. For I know of nothing against myself, i.e., my conscience is clear. For I know nothing against myself. That's what it means to have a clear conscience. Maybe it's, easy, it's important for me to define what a clear conscience is. Someone who, who has a clear conscience is someone who, hasn't, uh, who didn't have or hasn't had to uh, fight against uh, that intuition, that, 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 that sense of what is right and what is wrong. The person uh, just acted on it. Having a clear conscience it, the, it is... Sometimes you, you get the contrary. Guilty conscience. Someone who has a guilty conscience is someone who knows has acted against what their conscience was saying them to, for them to do. 
So the Apostle Paul says this, for I know nothing against myself. I have a clear conscience. And he says, I am not justified by this. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. I have a clear conscience, yet I'm not justified by this. For he who judge me, judges me is the Lord. Paul's point with this statement in, 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 before the, the council, before the Sanhedrin, is to say, I'm not an enemy of Judaism. I have a clear conscience. I have, I have not tried to undermine or destroy the, the Jewish religions. I'm at peace before God. For I am free from the guilt of profaning the, the Jewish religion. That's what he was being accused of. For him, the, Christ, the Christian faith, the faith that he has now, is not a, a breakaway from Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. It's the, it's the promised Messiah. It's the realization of all the hopes and expectations of the Jewish faith of the Old Testament for Paul and for, for the Bible, for the New Testament. It is the fulfillment. It's not, it's not the destruction or the, or the repudiation of the Old Testament. It is the, 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 the completion, the bringing to light, the turning from image and shadows and types to the reality of what those things pointed towards. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament, Paul would say, the Messiah there promised is Christ. The Messiah promised to the Jews is Christ. And Christ himself said that he came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. Through his resurrection from the dead, Witnessed by the disciples, the apostles, and by a hundred of others, and Paul himself. Paul was intended to show, in the same way that he did on the, on the steps of the Fort Antonia, to the, to the Jews that were gathered there, and that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul was intending to show the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the members of, the, of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, that Christ is the Messiah. But no sooner he begins to speak, no sooner he begins to utter these words, the, the high priest Ananias orders someone to, uh, to smite or strike him in the mouth preventing him from continuing. We do not know why, why the, the high priest was so upset with this. It, we're not told why he, he was so aroused by the words of the Apostle Paul that he felt like he, uh, that, that, that this was an appropriate course of action. But I'll tell you what, Ananias was not someone who could profess the same clear conscience as the Apostle Paul we know this from history. We know this from scripture as well. Even from the little bit that we have concerning Ananias. But we know this from, from history. Writers, like, historians like Josephus tell us about this man, this high priest in Paul's day. He was not someone to be commended. He was corrupt. He was deceitful. And light reproves darkness, and darkness rebels against the light. So it is only natural that he was upset. 
And here we find Paul losing his temper, having commanded Paul to you last week uh, for his uh, capacity to endure uh, evil uh, and to not revile. Here Paul actually loses it a little bit. Paul reacts to the abuse of authority uh, of Ananias more strongly than he had before with the commander Claudius Lysias. He not only warned him of his responsibility, but he actually made a prophetic, and I say prophetic uh, loosely here, a prophetic uh, imprecation, an imprecatory prayer against against. Uh, Ananias he says God will strike you you whitewashed wall for you said to judge me according to the law and you command me to be struck contrary to the law he's not acting what Paul is saying to him and the expression here the whitewashed wall recalls the way that our Lord Jesus spoke to the Pharisees woe to you scribes and Pharisees it's not so much the, 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 the way that uh, the invective here of, of calling a whitewashed wall that is sinful because uh, our Lord Jesus uh, used this kind of language as well and our Lord Jesus never reviled he, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Even so, so uh, you outwardly appear righteous before men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You are, you are whitewashed tombs. There is a sense here that, uh, that the outward was what was concerning. But Paul did lose his temper. Paul did uh, lose uh, his call for a moment with, the, with Ananias. Paul's imprecation was, was actually, let me just say this, was actually fulfilled uh, a few years later. Josephus, the historian, he actually says uh, that Ananias was murdered by his, by his fellow Jews because they, they discovered or uncovered that, that Ananias was uh, plotting with the Romans. Uh, he was murdered by Jewish rebels who saw him as an ally to the Roman imperial forces. And this is all very complicated. Politics uh, is not only complicated in the 21st century, it was complicated in the, in the first century. But nonetheless, he was struck down. But what I find interesting here, and, uh, and I want just spend a, a couple of minutes considering with you is the fact that Paul was willing when con confronted with his sin he defended himself yes he said that he did not know it was the high priest but he he admitted his wrongdoing he condemned himself from the, in front of the whole court. And that's why I, Paul is able to have such a good conscience. He doesn't play ignorant. 
You know, most of us, the, the natural, all of us probably, the, the natural tendency on, on being faced with this accusation, saying you're speaking against the high priest, would be to say, oh, I didn't know, so I'm, not, I, I'm blameless. Well, I didn't know. How was I supposed to know that the, this guy was the high priest? I didn't know it. I thought, I thought he was just some, some, uh, some member of the, 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 the council. I didn't know that. You cannot blame me. That's not what the Apostle Paul says, is it? He says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He confessed, he quoted from Exodus 22:28, And I'm happy that Paul does this. I actually think it is brilliant that Paul admits he did wrong. It's a hard thing for us to do, isn't it? It's a hard thing for us to admit that, that we have done wrong, especially, I would say especially in the face of our enemies, but I think it's equally as hard in the face of our friends. It's hard all around to say we're wrong for different reasons with friends and with enemies. But he confesses that he violated God's law. Let me tell you something, and this is why I think the Apostle Paul was able to have a good conscience before the Lord. The next best, best thing to not sinning, what's the second best thing to not sinning? It's confessing your sin as soon as you sin. That's the next best thing. And that's the Apostle Paul, although not perfect, he never claimed to be, he actually claimed the contrary. He always confessed his sin as soon as he committed it, as soon as he became aware of it. And that's, and that's so commendable. That's commendable to us. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He realized that he sinned and he confessed openly his sin, publicly. And that's, me, that's spirituality. Because if we did this, we would, have, we would spare ourselves so much trouble. If we judge ourselves, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, we, we, if we judge ourselves, we would not be what? Judged. If we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We would save ourselves from chastisement, from, from, from uh, the consequences of, uh, of a life lived against the will of God. Now let's face it, we, we're all going to sin. I'll, I'll, I sin, you sin, we all sin. We're going to transgress God's law. But what matters is how we deal with it. And the Apostle Paul deals with it in a brilliant way. He confesses it. Look, I didn't know. And you might ask, why didn't you know? And that's a question fair. <laughs> that's a fair question to ask. Why, Paul, didn't you know that the guy that you're speaking to was the high priest? Are you ignorant? 
How you, uh, are you, do you not see that he's wearing the, uh, some kind of special clothes or that he's sitting in some kind of special seat? Or do you not see that he, in, the, in, the, in the council uh, that is convened, he's, he's the one uh, leading the, the, or, or sharing the, the meeting? How did you not know? Well, I think he did not know precisely because the council was not meeting in a normal uh, setting. It was about 70 uh, odd men who met for this council. But if you read in, in verse 22, uh, in chapter 22, verse 30, uh, there is he released from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul and set him before them. It's, uh, the, the implication here is that they actually brought the council to the fort. They actually brought the council to, to, into the presence uh, of the commander and of Paul. And, and therefore, they were not sitting down. It was probably just a, a, some small or some hall in, uh, in the fortress. Uh, and, and, and probably they were not dressed with their normal attire. And by the way, Paul was not the greatest uh, with his eyesight. It is very possible that, that, that the Apostle Paul was very, uh, had a poor eyesight. You remember when, when he writes to the Galatians, he says, See how great or big the letters I write to you, how large the letters I've written to you. And a lot of commentators say that his eyesight... Towards the end of it, uh, towards this time, uh, his eyesight was very poor. In, in fact, in Galatians, there's this uh, conversation or this this hypothesis uh, put by the Apostle Paul. He says, "Well, you Galatians, you would have given me your own eyes." In Galatians 4:15, I I love the the well. Galatians was written very early on in in Paul's ministry as well. It's quite a few years of dealing with this blindness, if indeed he was. For I bear you witness that if possible, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He is saying, if there was some kind of surgical uh, transplantation possible, you would have taken your eyes from your, your own eyes and you would have given them to me. Paul was, had very poor eyesight, I believe. So that's why he didn't identify this in this setting of many people coming together where there is already quite a, a, a ruckus in the crowd that he didn't recognize Ananias. But he does not claim ignorance. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. I'm not to blame. He doesn't say, I didn't know who the high priest uh, was. So you, don't, don't complain to me. No, he says, I have sinned. I, I did not know he was the high priest, for you shall not speak against the ruler of your people. Uh, sinned against God, against you. The thief on the cross did exactly the same. I've sinned. I suffered justly. Period. But then the Apostle Paul and quickly, and this third point, he gives some testimony. We're in verse 4, verse 5. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil uh, of a ruler of your people. 
verse 6, But when Paul perceived one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, saying, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So Paul realized he's not going to get a fair trial in, in this. He's not going to have a fair trial from the Sanhedrin. But he knows the Sanhedrin is uh, not a monolithic uh, organization. It's not some kind of uh, everyone agrees inside of this, of this group. It's, uh, it's composed uh, of two main special interest groups. One, the Pharisees who were generally more conservative. They were more silently uh, rebellious uh, against Rome and, and the empire and the occupation. And they were more open to spiritual uh, things like angels and spirits and the doctrine of the resurrection. And on the other side, in the red corner, you'd have the Sadducees comprised the priest, uh, of the priestly aristocracy. They were the ones who were more uh, liberal, who were less... Um, spiritually minded they were more of uh, of a modernist uh, progressive uh, party they were more pro-rome they were opposed to the notion of, of the resurrection so what paul does he he divides to conquer as someone said he realizes that he's not going to have a fair trial so he identifies with one and he says, men and brethren, I'm being judged because of the resurrection, of the hope uh, of resurrection. I'm being judged because of, uh, of concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. And that's, that was a surefire way to get them all arguing against one another. It is a genius move uh, as well. He emphasized, I'm a Pharisee, I'm the son of a Pharisee. And although some people criticize him for this, he did not lie. He is. Uh, in, he was a Pharisee. He is, he is the son of a Pharisee. And his, his defense is not necessarily wrong. He is being judged for the hope of the resurrection. For the hope, uh, he is being judged for these things. And this statement immediately divides the Sanhedrin, raises an argument... Luke explains that, that the Sadducees uh, gives the explanation there uh, for why this happens because there, the, verse 8 for the Sadducees they say there is no resurrection and no angel or sp spirit but the Pharisees confess both. In verse 9 there arose a large outcry. They started fighting one another. They started, and I think the language here clearly denotes that they were, they were getting physical. They were going to break Paul into pieces, arguing with one another. And, the, and even the scribes of the Pharisees said, well, we cannot, he, Paul was speaking about these visions that he had on the temple. We cannot deny that he had these visions. Otherwise, we're going to be fighting against God. Let us not fight against God. And they start fighting more and more. And Claudius Lysias, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. Again, the commander 
is in God's providence uh, the deliverer of the apostle. And in the last verse, we find this wonderful statement that I wish we could have a little bit more time to spend or to, or to consider. Well, where we find this, but the following night, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for you as, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so must you, so must also bear witness at Rome. What a wonderful statement. I believe Paul was struggling. I believe Paul was indeed thinking that he was going to be uh, uh, dying there in Jerusalem. Similar to what happened in Corinth. You remember when Paul arrived in Corinth after having went through... Uh, I'm going to get it wrong now. But after having gone through uh, Philippi, chased away from Philippi... Thessalonica, chased away from Thessalonica, comes to Berea. Things seemingly are going well in Berea, but then the guys from Thessalonica come along and he has to flee from Thessalonica and he gets to Athens and Athens doesn't work very well as well. So he gets to Corinth and he's depressed. He is, he is deflated. He is despondent. And what happens in Corinth, he, the Lord comes and says to him, be of good cheer, Paul. Do not stop. Do not stop speaking the word. Do not be afraid. Contrary, do, do not hold your silence for I am with you and no one will dare to harm you for I have many people in this city and here in Jerusalem. And this night, Paul again, he's coming all happy. Third missionary journey. He brings the offering. He knows he's going to suffer trials and temptations. And he's, he's going to be afflicted. He, he knows that, that there is going to be trouble. And he perhaps might die in Jerusalem. But he gets there. And it's all this. And here comes the Lord again. I've told you, haven't I? People call this book the Acts of the Apostles. I, I think it is a misnomer. It's Acts, uh, the Acts of the Risen Christ. And here, Christ, uh, I actually have a, a, a red-lettered Bible in front of me. And, and it's impressive how much of, in the Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, there's red letters. <laughs> but Paul is there. And here comes the risen Christ, the King of Kings. And he comes down and he says, have courage. Be of good cheer, Paul. Because just as you have testified of me, he gives him this, this sense of, I know what you've been doing. You have testified of me just as you have testified of me in Jerusalem. So also you will testify of me in Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Paul wanted to be there, but it might have seemed impossible at this moment. But, Paul, but Christ says, you will go to Rome. I will be with you. Be of good cheer. The violence of the last two days is not something the Lord Jesus says to him. 
Or in a way is saying to him, the, la- the, the violence of the last two days, all the pain, all the tribulation, all the persecution of the last two days are not outside of my control and of my planning, of my eternal decree. Whatever you're going through, it is within the, the plan. It is hard. But these trials... Whatever you're going to get through in the, in, the, in the future. Whatever is making you anxious about in the future, Paul. It is all in my hands. He's going to spend two years in prison now. He's going to be thrown around. He's going to be placed in a boat. He's going to shipwreck. He's going to go through all kinds of, of, of difficult uh, circumstances. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so also you must bear witness of me in Rome. This passage is full of teaching, full of instruction, and full of edification, or matters of edification for us. Just wish to highlight three before we finish. The first of all, um, I think concerns the way we interact and we refer to religious or to civil or religious spiritual authorities the respect that is due to them you see one of the things i didn't mention is you could actually make an argument for paul being being right in speaking like that to the high priest he was a, da- a corrupt a devilish horrible man he might have, been, he might have uh, overstepped a little bit, but he was not wrong in what he said, was he? And yet the Bible says that we are to respect. In spite of the unworthiness of those who usurp their offices, we are to respect those in authority. Fortunately, we all know how many corruption scandals we, we have in our society's politics? It's the parties, it's, the, it's the, the, the giving a little bit of helping hand to this and that. And we are to be, uh, as Christians, outraged against the, that evil, outraged against their abuse of power when they protect the rich and leave the poor defenseless, regardless of the political spectrum here. And yet we are to respect all of them. And I think, for the most part, the UK politics is not too bad in this. I certainly know a few countries where the invective, even from believers towards their leaders, is much worse. Think across the pond. It's quite normal to see Christians speaking about those in authority with words just as bad or worse even than the Apostle Paul used here of Ananias. And we need to be careful. We need to remember that we are to speak respectfully to them. Romans 13 uh, does speak about submitting to those in authority when possible, when not against God's word, but it speaks about them being servants of God. Even those who are bad uh, 
over uh, uh, bad rulers, even those who are bad uh, uh, authorities, they are still servants of God. And in fact, the word there translated in the New King James is ministers of God. Those in authority are, minis- are God's ministers. And you know what is worse than a bad government? You know what is worse than uh, bad people in authority? Is no people in authority or no government. I know we, uh, we all like the, the idea of oh, just leave it alone and things will work out. If there, was even, <laughs> if there was no government, everything would collapse. Bad government is better than no government. <laughs> Certainly. They are better than the chaos that would result from uh, the absence of any kind of civil authority. So we need to be respectful. We need to be respectful not only to, towards the civil authorities, but the spiritual authorities as well. And I'll say this, and I know it, it seems like it's blowing your own trumpet or tooting your own horn, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes we speak about elders, about our elders, and I've heard this in our midst, I've heard this in other churches. We need to be respectful. There are men like us. I am just, I'm a part of the sheep. But you need to be careful with how you speak about your elders. You need to be careful with how, uh, how you speak to your elders, I would say. Because we need to respect those in authority. And you know me, I, I'd much rather have a, a normal conversation. I, this is not me saying you need to come to me and, and put your, your, your suit on or, or anything like that. But be careful. It's a matter of obedience before the Lord as well. The second lesson in our text, I think it, it is that uh, idea uh, that, the, that our Lord Jesus, that instruction that we should be harmless as doves, but as wise as serpents. Paul teaches us to do this in this passage. He understood that there was a fundamental division within the, 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 the Sanhedrin, and he aligned himself with one. And there was nothing wrong with it because he was seeking to testify. In fact, he did testify I find it interesting that in the, new, in the, in the book of Acts, uh, you read about Pharisees who became Christians. You never read about Sadducees who became Christians. I don't know what, why is that, but I find it interesting because the Pharisees did, in some sense, align closer to the, to the Christian faith. And by doing this, he perhaps testified to them by being wise as a serpent in this case and understanding the venue that he was in, understanding that he was, he, the cards were stacked against him but it actually, there was a way, uh, in the Lord's providence, there was a way to still testify in, 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 this, in this venue. And so we did. And I think it does much to teach us about that being harmless as doves and wise as serpents. That strategy of making intelligent use of those things whenever we, they are open and offered to us. And thirdly and lastly, I think it is the main point that I wish to underline as I finish, is the encouragement of knowing that whatever is happening to Paul here, the Lord was with him. The Lord was there. 
providing for him, that he would also go to the city of Rome. In the midst of imprisonments, of shipwrecks, of serpent bites, in the, we'll look at all of this in the, in, the, in the coming chapters, that in all of this, the Lord was there. The Lord cared. And sometimes we cry out, does God care? Yes, he does. He does care. He cares deeply. God came to Paul and he gave thanks to Paul for his past. He offered him comfort uh, for the present. And he assured him of the future. And Paul is in Christ is saying, all of this, I will be with you. In all that you face, I will protect you. Paul must have wondered what was going on. But Paul knew now that the Lord was with him. The Lord did not promise that the trials would end, that it would be some kind of miraculous. And Paul had experienced this before. When he was in Philippi, he was imprisoned, and the Lord released him. But now, the Lord doesn't release him. He's still going to endure this trial for many years now. But in the midst of it, at every turn, the Lord is going to be with him. And the Lord is with us. It might be something of an anticlimactic uh, that Paul is being taken to Rome as a prisoner. But it was God that purposed that Paul would arrive in Rome witnessing in shackles, being taken bound into Caesar's household where he would testify of him. You see, even in trials, God is advancing his purpose. You might say, how does God work all things to good for good of those uh, uh, that are his, uh, that love him, that are called according to his purpose? How does God work uh, in those evil things? Well, look at the evil thing that Paul was enduring now in prison, not knowing if he was going to live, how long he was going to live. But it is God's will that he is there. It is God's will for his life. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I need some kind of vision like the Apostle Paul had. I think I sometimes need to be assured by God. Be of good cheer. But we don't need the vision, do we? We do not need to wait for some guaranteeing future event because all the future events that we need to know about have already been guaranteed to us, just like they were for Paul, but they've been guaranteed for us as well. The hope of the resurrection is ours. Hope, that's why we rejoice in the hope of glory because we know what is coming. We know that all things work together for good of those who, who are in Christ. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us. That nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know all of this. 
Can we work in the full assurance that even though our earthly pilgrimage here might be troubled and, and, and difficult and we might face uh, crooks in our lot, that the consummation of our vocation is assured not by our works, not by our efforts, but by him who saved us, who brought us into his kingdom. He will see us through to the end. Him who in hands, whose, in whose hands we are safe and secure, that no one can snatch us from it. Him who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the anchor of our soul. As the author of Hebrews says, the anchor of our hope is beyond the veil in the final resurrection and in in the eternal life which have been assured to us by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That is why the hope of the resurrection is so important to us. That's why we can trust him, our Lord, even if we do not have the visions like the, like the Apostle Paul had. Let us do that. Let us trust him because he is the firm foundation of our, of our soul. 509 How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word.